Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, Friday, November 13th, uh, 2009. Hopefully we'll be all right here, Environmental Annie Solo at the controls today. Episode 146 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Huser, Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio this week is the Z-Man, Cliff It's always great to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. Also, we have a special guest in the studio today, Dr. Dieter Wiles with us. Hello, Dieter, our technical director. Hi there. Good day. Good to be here. Good day, Dieter. And uh, we've got Environmental Annie flying solo at the controls today. Hopefully, we won't drop off any cliffs here. Uh, We had some technical problems in the past, but we'll be all right. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Dr. Michael Finley from the University of West Florida. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, fundamentals of industrial hygiene course and applications to indoor environmental quality this week. We've got an IE Connections What's News segment with Glenn Fellman. We'll go to the second half of our interview with Dr. Finley, and then we'll go to the roundup. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week. The Z-Man's blog is up there at www.com iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank those sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To contact the show, you can either call in at that 724-444-744. Four number and enter the show ID 1547 or just go to the link on the iaqradio.com website that says go to the show. You can also download the show from iTunes. Don't forget we've got those ABIH certification maintenance points, IICRC continuing education credits, and the ACAC, formerly the IAQ Council, renewal credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, and we'll send you out the quizzes. That program's going along pretty well. Uh, Cliff and I's email addresses are also on the iaqradio.com homepage. Check it out. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Cliff, let's turn it over to you for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. (laughs) 
congratulations to Alex Lesko from Florence, Massachusetts, for correctly answering last week's microband trivia question. I think that's his second. Yes, sir. We got to send him the IAQ uh, IAQA stick this week. He okay. got an IAQ radio hat. No problem. All right. Okay. Listeners, win a cool prize by outcompeting your fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, November 13th, 2009. Because it's really an industrial hygiene show, we have an industrial hygiene trivia question. The question for today is... What is the ACGIH threshold limit value for fluoride primarily intended to guard against? Over to you, Joe. Okay, intended to guard against. Not what the limit is, but what it's intended to guard against. All Correct. right, let's get those students at UWF on there. We've got to send out some prizes to them. Okay. All right, today's guest is Dr. Michael Findlay. Dr. Finley is a Ph.D. and a CIH, Certified Industrial Hygienist, and a Certified Safety Professional. He's got over 30 years of safety, health, and environmental experience in a variety of industries, including construction, mining, manufacturing, and environmental restoration. He serves as the Environment, Safety, and Health Manager for EOD Technology, an employee-owned company that provides munitions response, security services, and critical mission support in austere and hostile environments. Dr. Finley is an adjunct faculty at the University of West Florida, where he teaches an online occupational safety and health courses, and at the undergraduate and graduate level. He's got a PhD in safety from the University of Tennessee, and a Master's of Science in Public Health in Industrial Hygiene from the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and he also has professional certifications I mentioned earlier as a certified industrial hygienist, and a certified safety professional. He is currently teaching the online Fundamentals of Industrial Hygiene Applications for Indoor Environmental Quality through the University of West Florida for the first time this semester. Along with other assignments and projects, students listen to IAQ radio broadcasts and post comments on the content each week. So, do we have some music for... Buddy, you're a young man, dumb man, careless, and you're gonna make someone quite sick someday. You got spores on your plate, they'll incubate. There's trouble if you cross-contaminate. Microbes, they might kill you. Microbes, they might kill you. I don't know where Cliff came up with that one from, Mike. <laughs> Good day, Dr. Mike Finley. How are you, sir? Well, I like the start of it where it said I'm a young man. That I definitely that I found very attractive. The rest of it was pretty strange. uh, Very creative, though. Very creative. We we try and make sure it matches up with the guest for the week. Uh, Okay, Um, Doctor Finley, we we've been you know you and I have been working together here on this uh, course this year, and it's been a great time. We got a lot of the students uh, signed in right now. I'm just curious, um, you've been teaching these online courses for quite a while now at the college level, and this is my first, and and what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of teaching these courses online? Yeah, before I go into that, let me just say that, Joe, you and I, I guess, met uh, years ago when I attended one of your courses, and you were teaching some uh, course down here, and that 
evolved into a relationship that we built with the University of West Florida. Of course, uh, Pam Parrish uh, was involved in that. She's um, in that program there. It's just finished up the master's program. And so, you know, what we've accomplished at the University of West Florida, teaming with them, uh, it's just uh, it's just remarkable. I'm really, really proud of that. And uh, I want to thank what you've done. I mean, it's been great. Um, thank you, Mike. As far as online courses, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I also want to mention that uh, we really should mention Dr. Sutton, Dr. Melanie Sutton, who was really instrumental in, in moving this stuff forward, and, uh, she, and, and Dr. Stewart as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think you know you and I, as practitioners out in in the business world, industry world, saw an, saw a need and opportunity, and you know they were right there for us and suggested ways that we could uh, build on that. We had workshops, and we've had training classes, and, and now we've had courses, and uh, we have a certificate in in uh, occupational safety and health, and it's just uh, it's just been uh, very exciting. It's a great great organization to work with. Um, online online education. Let me just start with the cons of online education. Probably the the one thing that people will uh, complain about first is the limited social interaction. Uh, you know, you you're, you're not sitting in a classroom, and and so you don't have that interaction. You know, you're not on a campus site. Uh, there oftentimes can be a lack of immediate feedback. Now that's somewhat solved. Uh, if you're taking a course at a university uh, where you're taking some online courses and, and, and some uh, in the classroom, but certainly limited social interaction is a problem. Uh, computer limitations, both in terms of skills, uh, not only the students, but also the instructor, and also in terms of equipment. Uh, you know, we, we do some things in our course that uh, require uh, some skills in terms of being able to do narrations of PowerPoints and these sorts of things. And so in addition to learning the subject matter, you ha if you're not a um, computer literate person, you, you have to uh, raise that level of literacy a little bit too. Uh, I mentioned instructors, and oftentimes stru instructors struggle to keep up with the software. And this is particularly true of developing courses. The, the um, the software that's required in order to load the actual course and to load the modules and so forth and so on it can be challenging. As a matter of fact, I, I have a uh, Dr. Eden Siskin uh, with the university. She works as my e-coach. They actually, uh, the university, uh, uh, Melanie, a wise person that she is, uh, assigned a person to help me so that I don't stumble too much in putting the course together. Uh, you know, the, the, another thing about online courses that, that sometimes can be a, a con is that traditional classroom instructors don't always make good online instructors. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, I have teamed with, with persons who are um, traditional classroom instructors, and some, some adapt well and others, uh, others don't adapt uh, well at all to that. Uh, from a student standpoint, you, you've got to have self-discipline, you've got to have motivation, and you really have to manage your time. Uh, these can be skills that, that are, uh, if you don't have them as a student, you're going to have problems in an online course. One of the things, you know, that really came home on this course uh, is there's no hands-on. And so, you know, in, a, in an industrial hygiene course, you know, there would always be some type of laboratory in which you would actually have the opportunity to actually touch stuff and 
turn stuff on and that sort of thing. And so with online courses, you don't have that. Now you can use videos and these sorts of things, and that's helpful. I think we've got to uh, look for more creative ways to address that hands-on. For example, you might be able to take uh, training courses like Joe, your your mobile remediation courses, and have those assigned out as a as a module as part of an online course. And that way, the student actually could get an opportunity to be in a uh, classroom for a limited amount of time and actually see stuff. Uh, which I think would be important. Accreditation, uh, accreditation is a problem. Uh, it's not as much problem as it used to be. Uh, there are there are a number of accredited schools out there, universities, traditional ones, that offer online courses. Uh, there are also uh, non-traditional online, uh, purely online schools that uh, have the accreditation. As far as accreditation goes, you have to do your homework. You have to. Uh, be knowledgeable and uh, read uh, carefully uh, the information on accreditation of a school that you're interested in and uh, take an online course at and ensure that that, uh, that they have the proper accreditation. There's always this hurdle, too, of uh, being concerned of whether employers will accept an online degree or accept online courses uh, or whether you can uh, use those online courses uh, to get into graduate school, and so um, you have to you have to ask those questions uh, up front. It really is uh, you can have an accredited program, but another institution might not recognize an online program, and so you have to go to that uh, other institution you're interested in going to and ask those questions. So, you know, there, there's some downsides to it. I certainly from the from a positive standpoint, convenience. Wow, it's just super convenient. Yeah. Uh, uh, for the most part, it's affordable. Uh, you know, just the saving in transportation alone is significant. The flexibility, you know, you can fit your course around work rather than trying to fit work around a course. Most of the courses online don't have a specific time that you have to be on. Now, we have a session that, that we call, uh, uh, we use a Illuminate, and it's scheduled for one evening a week. Uh, and still, if you're if you're not able to attend that, you can actually uh, view the recording later on. So it's not it's not really a problem. Accessibility. We we have students all over the the country, uh, and I have taught courses where we had students from all over the world. You know, we have a lot of military that take courses, and of course, uh, you know, they can be in Iraq, Afghanistan, or wherever. Um, one thing about uh, online teachers, too, a lot of times you find that the adjuncts often have a significant amount of work experience. It, it, uh, online teaching is attractive to um, persons with the proper educational credentials but who have a full-time job. So they want to, you know, they want to uh, experiment with teaching, do a little, you know, share what they've learned, these sorts of things, want to make a little extra money. And so you can... Oftentimes what you'll find is you'll find that adjunct teaching that online course uh, has a lot of real-world experience, and that can be real, uh, real positive thing. And, you know, I just sum it up. Online education has really come of age. And the old days of, you know, being uh, correspondence classes is really over. We know a great deal about effective online teaching techniques. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, uh, things that are used to 
enhance the learning experience. And I, I, you look at the University of West Florida and the things that they do in terms of using, um, you know, narration for uh, lectures and, you know, chat rooms and illuminate sessions and uh, the discussion uh, things that go on within those classes, the real positive things. So, you know, I, I came up in a traditional classroom education setting. I mean, that's where I got my schooling. Uh, but I have to say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of online now. And I think that online, what online has done is online has opened up the opportunities for students that didn't have the opportunities before. And, I mean, I think that's a great thing. It's a great thing. You know, you know Mike, it, it has, doing this with you has changed my thoughts on it quite a bit. Um, I, I agree with your summation of things, and I, I concur with everything you said. And I just want to make sure that the people out there listening understand, too, that I was actually surprised at how tough the course is, quite frankly. Um, I thought it would be easier for the students than uh, the traditional courses that I attended back at the University of Pittsburgh, and, and it's not. Um, they've got to, uh, reading assignments, they've got to listen to the show, they've got to comment on it, they've got to um, watch the, um, the the PowerPoint presentation for that particular module they're doing. Um, they're doing a paper this uh, for this course. Um, there's quizzes after each one, and um, they also communicate back and forth quite a bit with each other. So I'm I'm quite impressed. And then you also had them. I, I found some of the things you did to help with the cons interesting, in that, uh, for instance, you had them do research in different. Um, documents like the uh, the threshold limit values document he had them you know actually look up things and then there was an assignment to kind of write up what you thought was the um, the appropriate response to a particular situation you also had them go and call manufacturers and determine what the uh, what type of equipment they would have to buy and and you know how much it would cost and things of that nature so those are some of the ways that um, dr. Finley's been able to overcome some of the negative aspects of online training so I'm, I'm becoming sold Mike I have to say I don't know if we sold Dieter yet well, I, I've got a comment you know the one thing that all four of us I think in the studio today have is we've had some affiliation went to the University of Pittsburgh taught there etc and, and when I went there I went to night school there and what I found was an absence of professors you know we had graduate assistants I never saw a professor in a night school course and uh, none of these people mm. had I mean all their experience was gained in school so it was much less of the level that a professor would offer you know so it's not like with this where you have adjuncts and had real life experience and yeah. you know I, I just you know I wasn't impressed go ahead Mike go ahead Mike oh Dieter go ahead sir <clears throat> yeah well I'm I'm from the old school too and uh, I can see certain advantages but the one problem that I always have is and you mentioned it, is that social interaction. Uh, I did, uh, I worked in a group. I, I, I was one of the lucky guys. Dr. Korn, later on the director for OSHA, was my professor. And he could not give away scholarships. Can you believe that? We had like 12 scholarships and we were five or six students and had about 20 professors. It was heaven on earth. And you know, every door was open. We had a cafeteria. You could have lunch with your professors. You could ask this and that. I mean, that is an experience which you obviously cannot get via a computer. But I think also, uh, on the other hand, you know, 
uh, younger people are uh, probably better equipped to do this kind of learning than I am. I still believe in a, in a, in, a, in a classroom setting, and um, that that to me was something that that I liked. That I I could immediately ask a question. I know you can do that too, and if I couldn't get it uh, done that way, uh, <coughs> the professors were still in class after the class, and we could ask them. Like I said, the door was open. It is relatively easy to teach a course, but it is incredibly difficult to have what I call a program where everything fits together and where people have faculty meetings and they know one knows what the other one is doing and should be doing and so on. So that there is that mesh. That I think, I, I don't see how that can be achieved uh, with um, an online course. And I agree with you 100%. Oh, yes, I can learn a heck of a lot uh, uh, from that. I mean, I can study Egyptology in Pittsburgh and get very good at it, but I think it might be better if I go to Egypt <laughs> and uh, uh, study a little bit over there. So, I, I, yeah, there are pros and cons. And, of course, you mentioned the other pros. It's, you know, the, the, the cost alone, is, it's, it's incredible what today, what a degree costs. And you mentioned the time loss driving back and forth, not to mention the gasoline you need. And that uh, you touched on the accreditation. I don't know anything about that one. I went through ac uh, accreditation uh, acrobatics when I was a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And you know, they looked at code everything. But you know, that's, uh, it, 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 it is something that has to be uh, recognized that it is out there. Mike, do you want to add anything else? Yeah, you know, just uh, your comment about the, the toughness of the course, you know, my my experience is, is that the online courses that I've been involved in have generally been tougher than a classroom course in terms of the amount of work that needs to be done. You know, the way that those courses are developed is very similar to the classrooms, and there's a certain amount of uh, uh, contact, student contact time that's involved, and so uh, through the the accreditation requirements for the online uh, programs, you have to find ways to uh, be able to verify that there's that student contact time. And so, you know, that's taken pretty seriously. Uh, the thing about accreditation, you know, the, the schools that are accredited uh, that teach traditional uh, uh, classroom courses, you know, they can just move right over into the online. But what you had uh, for a while is you had a a, uh, a lot of these schools, uh, I don't want to say looked down, but sort of looked at online education sort of as distance learning, distance education, which in a lot of universities is really a whole different department. It's sort of out there in some other never-never land, uh, and it was considered sort of like the red-headed stepchild type thing. And so as a result of that, what you had is you had a number of these schools that are that are strictly online that stepped in to fill that void. And so uh, there are uh, accreditation programs out there that are specifically for the distance education learning. And so, uh, you know, again, it, 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 if you're going to a university, and there are several good ones that teach nothing but online courses, you have to be sure uh, that, you, uh, that you verify the accreditation 
if anybody has questions about that, I, you know, certainly you can email me or give me a buzz, and I can talk with you at length about that. But, uh, you know, the thing about the program, Dieter, I think that's a very, very good point. And, and how do you get that 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 uh, building, that cohesiveness of this group of students that are moving forward? And one of the things we do at the University of West Florida in the online Master of Public Health program, they have they have a graduate student council that meets, uh, and then they have periodic meetings that take place in which even people who are some, you know, significant distance away uh, fly in. I know that they've had meetings in which certain people couldn't fly in, but they would use the technology with the live streaming video and these sorts of things. Uh, of course, that's not the same as sitting around the, uh, the lunch area, you know, drinking a cup of coffee and, you know, talking with your professor about, you know, gee, what really happened when NIOSH was doing all those criteria documents, et cetera, et cetera, and stuff. So uh, that, that, that's a part that's a challenge. But, you know, the new students uh, don't seem to, uh, you know, they seem to be able to take that in stride. The other thing, too, is you have these non-traditional students who are uh, students who are working. You know, most, many of the students in, in the class, in the online class are already out there in the field and they're working. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to enhance uh, their their skills and their education so that they can advance, uh, you know, in their profession. And so, uh, it, you know, many of them are married, have children, these sorts of things, and so they can't, you know, go back uh, full time. So, so it's a great opportunity for people that, you know, for the right person. It is, You know, right. could you still go to a block brick and mortar sure they're they're great uh but i have to tell you in my undergraduate program i i i always joked with my dad that i majored in frisbee uh, pretty much in <laughs> right. college so i, I don't know yeah. <laughs> well mike you made a great point we, we will we're going to move on here in just a moment okay. but i, I want to i really want to um reemphasize the point you made that was something that impressed me is that we have working people um, now some of them are graduate students as a part of this course and the input that they give to the other students is really valuable stuff I mean you know it's not like you've got a bunch of people there that have never been out and had a, a job in this type of industry a lot of them are working in the public or several are working in the public health field right now and they bring a great perspective to the class, and, and they help the ones that don't have any of that experience quite a bit. At least that's what I seem uh, I have seen in this course. Well, absolutely, and the discussion forum is uh, very, very active. And, and Joe, you mentioned earlier what we've done is we've assigned the students uh, listen to or view the the uh, IAQ radio episode each week, and then they're required to post a discussion on that and then uh, respond at least to one student. What I find is that students, you know, go way beyond the minimum and they're, and they're just talking up a storm. Uh, and, uh, you know, very, very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. You know, one of the things that you, you're uh, struck by is that our perspective has become somewhat narrow because we work in the field and it's sort of second nature for us. And, and so we sort of don't recognize the questions that that new person to the field would have, and so they can bring some of these sorts of things up. So pretty neat, pretty neat experience. All right, well, before we go to a halftime, we're going to go to halftime in a couple of minutes, but I want to set up the second half of the show 
in the the current module that we're working on, it's um, it's the the control of indo uh, indoor environmental well the control in, of industrial hygiene type is issues. And there's a section that says general methods for the control of airborne hazards. So today, the second half, we're going to focus on that. And to, before we do that, um, we have to get some assumptions that are in the book out. The fundamental control assumptions, there are five fundamental assumptions that the occupational hygienist should recognize. One is that all hazards can be controlled to some degree and by some method. Two is there are alternative approaches to control. Three is more than one control may be useful or required. Four is some control methods are more cost-effective than others. Five is controls may not completely control the hazards. So we have to choose controls based on these assumptions that will be realistic and cost-effective. And in the second half of the show, we're going to come back and we're going to use those five uh, fundamental assumptions to discuss the different types of controls that are brought out in the module. But before we do, let's take a short break here, and uh, we're going to bring on Glenn, Glenn Fellman for the IE Connections What's News segment. have our leader of men and women on the line here. Hello, Glenn. Hello, how are you? Very well, thanks. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Great show so far. Well, thank you. You survived the rain? We survived the rain, but that's got to be uh, the lead story today. Okay. Uh, what uh, a, a very late season hurricane that went through the Gulf of Mexico and, and hit the uh, Alabama-Mississippi coastline as a tropical storm made its way up, uh, went a little bit east, and became what's known as a nor'easter. And it stalled right along the coastline of uh, the Carolinas in Virginia. And my understanding is that along that coastline, they received up to 12 inches of water in uh, roughly a 36 to 24-hour period. If you watch CNN today, I'm sure you'll see people uh, riding in canoes out their front door. Yes, sir. <laughs> so we've got a major, major water disaster that is affecting uh, really the entire east coast from the Carolinas. And the storm's not over yet. It, it, it's making its way up north and, and could do similar damage in New England in the coming days. So those out there in the uh, water restoration field or deal with dampness and, and those any issues, they're going to be busy this next couple yes, weeks. Yes, they will. There's some other stuff going on, very timely stuff this week. Uh, yesterday uh, was a, a big story. Uh, the CDC has suddenly changed uh, its estimates on the number of H1N1 infections and deaths in the U.S., according to some new figures. They say about 4,000 Americans, including 540 children, have died of H1N1 flu, and 2 million people have been infected since April when the novel virus first uh, came about and surfaced. Uh, this new death toll, which encompasses data through October 17th, so got another month to add in there, uh, represents a tripling of CDC estimates that they just issued last week. 
up until now, the CDC's weekly updates uh, uh, had um, come from reports from hospitals and laboratory confirmed cases of H1N1, a figure that the agency said, you know, they were well aware only captured a sliver of, of the actual population. The new figures are based on an algorithm that estimates the true impact of H1N1 on the U.S. population and apparently takes into account the patients who were left out of the official lab confirmed tallies. Uh, CDC believes that for every one case that is reported and confirmed with a laboratory test, there are 79 additional ones that go unrecorded. Uh, also very interesting in the same report out of CDC yesterday, of all hospitalized Americans for H1N1, more than half were between the ages of 18 and 64, while only 9% were 65 or older. Now, take this into consideration. That distribution is the opposite of the way seasonal flu usually affects the community. In seasonal flu, typical years, 90% of hospitalizations are among those 65 or older. And it's only 9% with H1N1. So what that means for us is that, you know, we don't know what the, what, where we are on the wave of H1N1, but seasonal flu hasn't even kicked in yet. So we've got some interesting times coming up in the next few months. And, Glenn, I know you know this off the top of your head. How many people average on an annual basis die from the seasonal flu? About 30,000. About 30,000. That's what oh. I thought. Okay. So you've About got 4,000 already of the H1N1 this year, and we're still going to get about 30,000 probably uh, from the regular flu. Plus, whatever happens from here on out. And I think the scary thing. Yeah, I mean, is. seasonal flu usually starts about now. I mean, this is this is the beginning of seasonal flu time. So uh, uh, we'll see what happens. Cliff? Hey, I got one more big story I want okay. to cover for though before before we uh, before we return back to the program. There's a there's a huge event going on this week. Uh, the U.S. GBC's Green Build Conference. It opened up on Wednesday night at Chase Field, the home of the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, and that's where uh, it really kicked off with a bang. Uh, the USGBC president, uh, CEO, and the founding chair, Rick Fedrizzi, uh, took the podium speaking to an audience, get this, of more than 28,000 people, uh, where he stressed the importance of green building and human health. And I think this is significant because when in reading their press releases and some of the things that have come out of there this week, human health looks like it's uh, made its way more to the forefront. And I'm going to quote from what some of the things that Rick Fedrizzi said real quick. He said, our work should not be defined solely by the number of LEED-certified homes, offices, schools, and neighborhoods. It's all about the people inside of them. Green building is about families who must weigh their power bill against their grocery bill. It's about workers who labor in buildings that take a toll on their bodies and spirits. And it's about kids who spend their entire childhoods in toxic classrooms. So we've got some interesting stuff there. Now, uh, if this, you know, as if that wasn't enough, the uh, first speaker of the night, or the uh, guest speaker, was Al Gore, uh, who called on the audience to make choices that required them to ensure we leave the earth better for our children. And the show that night closed out with a performance by Sheryl Crow, who was quoted as saying, "Performing at Green Build is like being on the international stage of the green movement, celebrating you, uh, celebrating with you the progress we're making on this important issue." For those uh, listeners who'd like to be able to kind of peek in on what's happening, archived video footage from the Green Build opening keynote and celebration can be viewed at greenbuildexpo.org. Right. The event concludes today. 
Excellent, Glenn. Well, that's that's great. I didn't even know that was going on, and I don't know if anybody else here did, but they're all writing it down. So, I, I, I got the invitation hey, on the in, org. All right. Very good. Will you be able to join us for the roundup? Absolutely. All right. We'll bring you back. Thanks a lot, Glenn. All right. Before we get back to our show, let's uh, thank those sponsors real quick. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Now thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryze Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryze is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, let's go back to Dr. Finley. Mike, uh, we've got uh, the list of the different types of controls in this current module we're, we're looking at. We've got administrative controls, engineering controls, source modification, substitution, process change, ventilation, process controls, and isolating techniques. I'm wondering if, uh, obviously, we're not going to get through all of these today, but what I want to do is tie these back to indoor environmental quality issues. And I think the first thing we should probably do is um, clarify what administrative controls are, Mike. Can you talk to us a little bit about what type of administrative controls we would use to help with indoor environmental quality type issues? Well, one of the key things for admin controls is training, and, you know, effective training is is a very difficult thing. Administrative controls, they depend on the actions of, of persons, and so uh, that's why uh, when we talk about this hierarchy of controls, we like to use engineering controls first uh, and then work uh, and then administrative controls and then finally uh, different TP and sorts of things. But again, you know, uh, with any administrative program, there's always going to be glitches, and so if that's all you've got, uh, that you're depending on to keep people from being exposed, uh, uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. Let me ask you this, Mike. It, um, I'm working with some folks, and we've had uh, Tom Neltner from the National Center for, Center for Healthy Housing, and we've had some other folks talking about home health assessment type uh, projects that we're working on. Kevin Kennedy was on the show where um, groups are going out and they're providing education to homeowners about allergy and asthma to assist them with making sure their children don't have an asthma attack and and their allergy symptoms are are lessened. Would you consider that a type of administrative control? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, training and education is administrative control. 
Because really, see, once you've provided that information, what is that uh, that family who's in that home who has that hypersensitive individual? You know, what are they going to do with that information? And so, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of opportunity there for a lot of different things to happen. Some good, and and some maybe not so good. I was looking at this next category, engineering controls, and, and behind it it says process change, substitution, isolation, ventilation, source modification, and, and it includes PPE and gloves. I, I always thought PPE was separate from engineering controls, but maybe industrial hygiene looks at it a little differently than uh, regulatory. I, and I always thought that you'd lower the exposure as much as possible through engineering controls first, and then supplement through that through PPE, which I thought was a separate category, but they've got them lumped together here, Mike. Is um, is that common? Well, no, I found that a little curious, too. I actually thought in your email that you sent me of those points that, that you just forgot to uh, hit enter so that it had a space behind it. And, you know, really, PPE is, is, is a separate thing from engineering controls. Again, with PPE, the same as administrative controls, you're dealing with uh, depending on the actions of workers or the actions of uh, occupants. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, when possible, that can't be your only line of defense against exposure. I'm going to have to check the book. I took these from the book, but then when I cut and paste them, that might have moved over. So that I, I just yeah, noticed that. I, All right, I'll double-check that. that. Hopefully we've Well, the that traditional right. one, and Dieter can jump in here too, is, you know, it's that hierarchy, it's that, you know, engineering, administrative, and then personal protective equipment. So. Okay. Oh, absolutely, yes. Okay. What's the, Dieter, uh, let's go to you for a moment. What's the most common engineering control that you see used on, like, indoor environmental type quality projects? And we could talk about residential. We could talk about your uh, work in, you know, commercial buildings or your work in, um, in, in manufacturing processes. Well, in every one of those buildings, in any one of those operations, there is always ventilation, one way or another. And I have solved quite a few problems by having adequate ventilation and correct ventilation. And um, uh, that, that, that has worked for me. And it's, it, I, I, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm, I'm flabbergasted to see that nice buildings have absolutely lousy ventilation systems. It looks sometimes as though it's an afterthought. Oh, we, oh, by the way, but guys, we have to put in ventilation. Oh, yeah, nobody told us. And um, ventilation is part of engineering. It's part of design. It's part of architecture. And uh, the people ought to pay attention to that because, like I said, I, I <laughs> the, the majority of the problems that I'm being called on, uh, have something to do with ventilation. Mike, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I just, just to underscore what Dieter said there, I mean, in industrial hygiene, we, you know, a lot of times we think first of, of, of local ventilation, where you're actually, you've got some sort of, you know, source, defined source, and you're controlling, but dilution ventilation, certainly in indoor environmental quality, is a huge, huge uh, factor and, and I know we've all looked at this information of what happened over the years in terms of makeup air and how the makeup air changed and that sort of thing. But, but uh, you know, and I, I had the same experiences in very, very, uh, you know, high-dollar uh, office buildings uh, that, you know, 
prestigious addresses and these sorts of things. And then you get in there and you find uh, uh, all sorts of problems in terms of the, the uh, heating and ventilation system, which, you know, the first few times you're surprised, and then after you see it all the time, you just kind of go, oh, yeah, they don't, <laughs> you just, oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> Another one. Shake your yeah. head, send them a bill, and move on to the next one. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things I think about controls and, and you know, that that what's, what I think is very, very important about the selection of controls is that you have to define what the problem is. And the defi- definition of that problem is a very difficult thing. And so, you know, you, you have, I see situations where people buy stuff from different people uh, because it's touted as a control and maybe it did work in some environment, but they didn't necessarily bring a you know knowledgeable professional into the picture to to be sure that you know they define what the problem is I, you know that's a to me that's a big thing i mean you know just think of all the abatement projects that have taken place and you know some percentage of those didn't need to be done and it had to do with an improper uh, assessment of the problem to begin with okay Cliff, I'd, I'd like to bring you in here because sure. um, I know you in the past had done some HVAC systems cleaning, and um, I'm not sure if you've done any of the um, uh, fume hood type cleaning or how familiar you are with that, but that's a big ventilation issue. You know, you've got uh, these fume hoods that people use in, in different types like of in applications, like in a laboratory like or a kitchen. Um, let's say you've got a kitchen. Um, what kind of uh, thoughts do you have with respect to the engineering controls you see there well i think you know in kitchens you know the big issue is grease you know they're cooking with grease they have all these grease droplets and those grease droplets um, are going to deposit on different surfaces uh, so you know they end up evacuating them from the building the problem is is that um, some of that builds up you know it builds up inside the hood it builds up you know, inside the, the ductwork, and generally on sitting on top of this is a fan, and it builds up in the fan, and it ends up being a fire hazard. And uh, that's one of the primary reasons that, you know, they end up you know, needing to, uh, you, know, to, to, you know, to clean that out. As far as laboratories, really don't have any experience with cleaning uh, fume hoods in, in laboratories, but I suspect that you probably wouldn't get the buildup in there that you would get uh, elsewhere, I, I think the, probably the, the scariest ones would be maybe working in a microbiology lab. You know, where, where you know where these people are working, uh, you know, under a negative pressure and uh, you know some sort of wood system. And I'm yeah. not sure exactly who cleans that, uh, or exactly how they clean it. I know you were in the lab back at, at the university. How how was that handled there? Well, <coughs> I never the the hoods which I personally used. Um, they didn't need any serious cleaning. Okay. They just didn't have enough stuff in there. They were were they more like a source type of hood, so it was just a smaller hood, or was oh it no no no, hood? they were I, oh at least like eight feet by four feet. Okay, and with a sash up front and a window and so on. That's a big issue right now, by the uh, way. Yes, where it there's is. a lot of uh, and testing of those fume hoods to make sure that they're actually adequately removing whatever they're working on is a, a big issue as well. And we had some problem at the University of Pittsburgh with a, with a department called the Infectious Disease Department. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you better watch out what you are putting out in the air. Okay. 
Mike, any comments on that? Yeah, I, the, you know, the, it's important to have a, a good maintenance program, you know, on these on these hoods and that in maintenance and testing program. And so periodically they do have to be tested. Where I've seen problems is where uh, in laboratories the the mission of that particular laboratory might change. You know, R and D laboratories are are a classic example, and and so uh, you know they they change the materials that are inside of uh, that are dealt with inside the hood. And so you can have you can have incompatible materials, and while you might have small amounts of stuff in a hood, you know, all of a sudden you're driving something else up there. And of course, there's always a concern of uh, you know explosive materials, uh, you know, that that uh, that might get caught up in the hoods too. So you know, it's it's a very very specialized uh, uh, requirements for doing that. But, don't, don't your average CIH is not going to do that. Okay, uh, Cliff, I know you wanted to. Ask yeah, I, I I just have one comment. It's really it's probably a suggestion to people that may be involved with it, and it's certainly a suggestion that fits in with uh, disaster repair as well. I think a lot of decisions are really based on bad information, and you're dealing with these fume hoods. It at most they might take a smoke pencil and put it in front and you know what happens is you get such a limited view of what's going on I think it can result in making a bad decision and I think the same time uh, same thing happens with drawing the interiors of the building and one of the things you can do I mean there are a lot of non-toxic methods that enable you to fill up a room with smoke and you can see what happens and the amazing thing is once you can see what's going on and visualize it I think it makes diagnosis a lot easier, and I think you can get to the bottom of the problem and make the right decision in the first place. What kind of method are you talking about? Like fogging the room with Yeah, the... yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, yeah, and I think there are non-toxic fogs that you can put in there, but literally you can see what's happening, and you can see whether or not, you know, if you've got a fume hood, whether or not anything's rolling back out, mm -hmm. uh, and you can see the path of the air currents. And I think if you're walking around like with a, smoke pencil which isn't a whole lot more than a couple of cigarettes uh, you know you, you can't really get you know you, you can't get a, a, a good idea so. Did yeah, I use the theatrical smoke, uh, smoke uh, machine absolutely and uh, I tell you one thing it makes uh, quite a bit of uh, fog. fog in a hurry right and and like Cliff said that's the it's the good thing you see what is going on Okay. If I tell you it's 30 feet per second over there or 20 feet per minute over there, we don't have a good feel for it. But we have pretty good eyes, and we can see what is happening. Okay. And, you know, one comment with the water damage industry. I mean, they're absolutely doing things bass-ackwards because they've never lo looked at smoke and never looked at what happens in these rooms. And there's a whole lot of air movers blown, you know, banging air against walls and not putting it where it needs not directing it not the way it directing needs to be it needs, needs to go and they have no idea what's going <coughs> on because they've never looked well what would you recommend using to help with that problem yeah um, i think it's similar you know the products that yeah, i'm not trying to sell products but you know products that the company makes are similar to theatrical smoke in terms of you know same type of health hazard i mean it's pretty much edible or or cosmetic grade materials that you're putting into the air. I mean, you know, you can use uh, carbon dioxide as well. You know, you can use dry ice, uh, you, know, for, you know, for the same type application. But you need to see what's going on. It is slightly, a couple of people have complained in theaters 
with rock and roll shows and right, so right, on. Right. It is slightly irritating. And again, I guess if somebody has asthma, they will not like to inhale that smoke. It doesn't do anything to me. Okay. Uh, but that is another thing. But we want them out of the building while that's and, going on too, yeah. right? And talking here to Mike from a university, I think I taught that may have changed. I think I taught the last ventilation course at the University of Pittsburgh about 20 years ago. I, I have a master's and undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering. We didn't learn anything about industrial ventilation. I don't know what is happening in the School of Architecture at Carnegie Mellon University, whether these guys have formal training uh, in the design of uh, ventilation. And, and Mike said it also, I have yet to find a ventilation system where there is an attached uh, maintenance schedule that somebody has signed <laughs> and dated. It just doesn't exist. I, it's unbelievable. Mike, hmm. any comment? Well, yeah, that the, the maintenance issue is just a just a big problem. But, you know, of course, one of the things is we design things such that the maintenance points are very difficult to get to, and so we don't think about that. And, and, and you know, sometimes there's exposures associated with that, or, or certainly safety hazards associated with that. The, the, the whole discussion about the testing of, uh, uh, let's say, negative pressure enclosures with these uh, theatrical smoke machines, I mean, if you've never done this, and you're involved with uh, an asbestos remediation or a mold remediation, let's say it's in an area where uh, there are occupied facilities that are adjoining it. It's very, very instructive to do this because regardless of whether you have the negative pressure that you think you have, uh, you, uh, you can have all sorts of leaks in this, this plastic. Remember that we're talking about a bunch of plastic put up with staples and tape and glues and whatever, and uh, you know they they it's very difficult to get good seals. You know you really should be checking these things. Well, Mike, we've got a, a list of other control techniques here. We've got source modification, substitution, process change. Um, we've talked a little on ventilation, so I'm going to skip that. Uh, process controls and isolating techniques. Would you like to pick one of those and talk for a moment about how they apply to indoor environmental quality? Yeah, let me just back up and just talk about design. You know, we, we always uh, uh, often miss the opportunity during the design phase to put things in order so that we design out hazards. And, and certainly that's true of not only in industrial settings, but also in settings where indoor environmental quality is important. You know, the, all of this, this, the movement that we have now toward green buildings and these sorts of things, that, I think that's a positive. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, process changes, yeah, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, if you can change the process so that you can get certain materials out of there uh, so that there aren't exposures, that's a positive thing. Substitution, you know, certainly specifications on uh build back materials or, or new materials, we should be looking at those things. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we come in after the fact, and it's just really it's just really a shame. It's difficult to um, fix something after the fact, so that's a great point. Designing these things in from the beginning would be really helpful. 
What about isolating techniques? Is, is there anything? I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, for instance, a hospital. What type of isolating techniques would be used in a hospital? Well, I mean, the, the, the primary isolation is a wall. I mean, you know, you, you, you have rooms that are, that are segregated, the departments are segregated, and one of, the, one of the problems, of course, is that you've got to be sure that those ventilations don't cross-contaminate. I mean, that's a, that's a problem. And then you can use positive or negative uh, uh, pressures in order to, you know, safeguard an area from another area. That, you know, I mean, just look at the uh, just look at the uh, uh, infectious disease control procedures that, that that take place. Also, one of the things about this is that that you know there's a lot of difference between hospitals in terms of how well they do this. If you look at the way hospitals are rated, there's a wide range in terms of uh, the 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 infection rate uh, from one hospital to the other, and so that tells me that they're really you know, there really are things that we can do. So it's kind of that first assumption, I believe it was, that said that, you know, we actually can control things. You know, there is this, there is this one school of thought that says we can't control anything, but actually you can. And well, that's demonstrated by the different performance of hospitals. Well said, and that was the first one. All hazards can be controlled to some degree and by some method. And I think um, substitution's a big issue right now, and you hit on it with the, even with the green building movement. They're um, substituting uh, certain uh, products that don't off-gas as much, for, you know, with others. So um, that's that's a great uh, great comment as well. We've got about uh, five minutes remaining here, a little less than that. Let's go to the roundup here, and then we're going to uh, go once around the horn and finish this up. I just want to make sure, Mike, that uh, some of the listeners don't know that um, you can't see the, the chat going on. And uh, Mia said to say hello out there. And uh, there's a couple oh, okay, other good great. ones in there. So we've got a few people listening and chatting in. Um, what I'd like to do is go around the horn and give everybody one last chance. Let's start with Glenn Fellman. All right, great. Thanks a lot. You know, I really keyed into the part of the conversation there uh, where we were talking about ventilation and you were talking about different types of exhaust systems other than HVAC exhaust. Um, you talked a little bit about kitchens and, and Cliff had some, some very insightful comments. There's some great resources out there for uh, kitchen ventilation. Uh, look into uh, National Fire Protection Association Standard 96. Check out the International Kitchen Exhaust Cleaning Association, their standards and practices. Uh, the ASHRAE Fundamentals Handbook has some great stuff on kitchens. But um, I wanted to, to, to ask our guest today whether he, he was um, uh, familiar with some of the programs uh, through the Controlled Environment Testing Association, CETA. Uh, their website is CETA, C-E-T-A, international.org. Uh, they've done some neat things, and I'd encourage uh, folks who are interested in, in, in exhaust ventilation through uh, through hoods and, and in controlled environments to, to look at some of their documents. Okay, yeah, thanks. Yeah, that, that's 
doesn't ring a bell for me, but what's take the, a look at that. I think you might find some interesting things there. CETA, that what's that stand for again, Glenn? Controlled Environment Testing Association. We'll check that out. Is that a fairly is it has that organization been around for a while or is it fairly new or? Oh, their 18th annual meeting is coming up next year, so they've been around a while. Okay. I know you, uh, you're you closely involved with the kitchen exhaust folks, and so uh, I, I'm sure you find that interesting. And uh, I know that that is an area where, and you can confirm this for me or not, that uh, I believe there's some new regulatory um, things coming out with respect to kitchen exhaust cleaning. Well, I mean, there's already regulations. There's been regulations for decades. Uh, the NFPA 96 standard, which has been adopted by, you know, states and municipalities uh, from coast to coast, um, you know, clearly says kitchen exhaust systems will be inspected on a periodic basis depending on the volume of cooking and the, and the type of cooking, and they'll be cleaned if necessary by a trained, qualified, and certified person. And, uh, and that statute's been on, on the books forever. Fire officials have had the ability to enforce it. Um, regrettably, uh, very rarely does that enforcement take place. Wasn't, some, wasn't there something new we talked about, though, in Massachusetts where they were going to really step up oh, and enforce yeah. that? Well, in, in yeah, the state of, uh, well, actually, the city of Boston is now uh, licensing kitchen exhaust cleaners and inspectors. Uh, they're using the International Kitchen Exhaust Cleaning Association's certification exam as a qualifier. And the state of Massachusetts is about to, to take uh, similar action, and it's happening across the country. I mean, literally coast to coast. I know in, 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 uh, in Portland, Oregon, they're looking at doing those types of things, and it's it's very interesting the way it pops up as as, uh, as a municipal issue or a state issue rather than um, you know a, a, a nationwide issue. I see. Well, thanks for that, Glenn. Let's go on to uh, Cliff. Do you have anything you'd like to add or a final uh, question? I have a question actually, Mike. In your bio, when you were with EOD Technology, it said something about munitions response, and I just wondered, uh, being kind of a Second Amendment guy, uh, what you meant by that. <laughs> yeah. Well. I- uh, okay, EOD Technology is a company that uh, provides uh, range clearance, uh, explosive ordnance disposal, uh, these type of things. So I work for them now, and they, uh, we have a good bit of work in Iraq, uh, cleaning up some of these old... Uh, uh, there might not have been any mass, uh, weapons of mass destruction, but there's an unbelievable amount of conventional weaponry that's over there, and so... All of this, unfortunately, has been, you know, was left in, in sort of disarray. And so our company and, and some others are over there uh, helping to clean this up. Uh, you know, so explosive ordnance disposal. Cool. Thank you. Interesting stuff. Dieter, anything you'd like to add, Dr. Wall? <coughs> well, I, 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 I go along with uh, Mike, and it's our first point. I think education is, is a major point that people know what is going on. Uh, that they are indoctrinated to do it correctly and don't you know, keep your fingers crossed and hope for the best. I, I think a good educational program uh, works wonders, and I have, I have worked with it in, in, in coal mines, in, in, in chemical plants, in, in paint companies, in, in foundries, and uh, all of a sudden when people understand why certain things are done, um, and actually, all these regulations, yeah, they cost money, but why do we have them? To protect the worker. You know, that's the only reason, you know, 
we, we really have them. If, the, if, if everything would be non-hazardous and non-toxic, and uh, then we wouldn't need any of that. But uh, so I, I go with the education thing, and I've, you know, through the years, 30, 40 years that I'm doing it, after, you, don't, you don't score on the first day, but after you talk to a couple of people and they kind of see what you're doing and why you are doing, they do understand. I mean, they are not, they are not necessarily all dummies. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, thank you, Dieter. And, Mike, what I'd like to do before we go is um, I, I have two questions. One is you, you had mentioned the um, online Masters of Public Health program, and that's available through the University of West Florida. And I understand you're doing – I know you're not just doing the Fundamentals of Industrial Hygiene course. What other health and safety courses are you doing now, and are they online? Yeah, there, there's three courses that are currently available online. Uh, they're part of a certificate program at the uh, University of West Florida. They're both at the undergraduate and graduate level. The one I teach in the spring is occupational safety in the healthcare environment. And just to, to uh, touch on what Dieter was talking about, the education, you know, one of the things that we find is that uh, by the public health students and also students in allied and health uh, life sciences that are taking this course, most of them are not going to become an industrial hygienist. However, what they are able to do is they are able to take what they learn in this class and then see how that they, how they can uh, put that uh, into, uh, into practice or, or be able to be a, a stronger contributor in the organizations that they later work on. And so, you know, it's the same thing of training person at workers. The more informed the worker is, the more that that worker is going to uh, have an opportunity to make a positive contribution. I mean, so we certainly see this for these public health students. You know. Okay, and there's one other course that is a part of that certificate program? Yeah, there's the Fundamentals of Occupational Safety and Health. It's uh, You know, you have your Fundamentals of Industrial Hygiene, and we have the Fundamentals of really safety that goes at it from a from a safety standpoint and you know there you get into a lot of the things that deal with uh, OSHA record keeping and these sorts of things and setting up safety programs and safety program management uh, we also deal with uh, safety climate surveys and uh, you know attitude perception surveys human factors type things I see. And before we go, Mike, is there anything that we missed or anything that you'd like to add uh, before we've got to sign off here? Well, I, I just have thoroughly enjoyed this uh, IQ radio program. I, I, uh, I'm i amazed at how quick the hour goes by. It was <laughs> yeah, fun. Me too. <laughs> it went quick all, today, all that's of us. for sure. <laughs> but uh, it was great to have you on. I hope we'll have you on in the future. And um, before we go, how would people get more information about the programs at the university? Well, you can go online and, and go to the university website that, you know, your University of West Florida uh, in Pensacola, Florida. I don't have that, that website right now, but you can also uh, uh, email me. or My email is m-f-i-n-d-l-e-y at eshsolutions.net. Uh, I, I suppose that can be posted somewhere, but... Uh, you know, or you can call you, and you can get my number, and they can call me. We can uh, we can get that up. It's uh, M. Well, I have it, but I'll repeat it for the listeners: M. Findley, F. I. N. D. L. E. Y. 
at eshsolutions.com. And uh, this is dot where, net. I'm sorry, dot net. Oh, thank you. Yeah, somebody uh, else had bought the dot com. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, Mike. Well, I want to uh, thank Dr. Michael Finley for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. It's been uh, great to have you with us, and I've really enjoyed working with you on this course. And I hope we'll be doing it for years to come. Uh, next week, we're going to have a show on ocean enforcement, Cliff. Yep. Uh, Mr. Paul Snyder will be with us. And it's funny you did that because um, I was in Florida last week, and um, a, a colleague, a, a friend of ours, said to me, Hey, Joe, do you do anything on confined space? And I said, Well, yeah, you know, I can touch on that a little bit. He said, I understand there's going to be a big OSHA push on confined space yeah. and some other things i got some backroom information i said ah we got you covered there tom we got a show on it next week oh so. yeah and and well you know primarily there have been a lot of changes under the new administration so and uh they're an expert in, uh, paul's an expert in that and he's going to go over that and we're going to talk about the new enforcement initiatives under uh, the new administration next week all right well very good uh, before we go, I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. I like uh, working with you, Chuck. Always a pleasure. And, uh, of course, Dr. Dietrich Wow, our technical director, for joining us here today. Always it, a pleasure. Thank great, you, Joe. Great to have you in the studio. Environmental Annie and Annie Kolecki at the controls there. Didn't go off any cliffs today. Thank you very much. And, of course, uh, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Finley from... University of West Florida. And of course, we want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 